Let us begin with prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee for all the blessings of the past week. We thank thee, our Father, that we stand, not in our righteousness, but in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and in thy grace. In this confidence, we come to thee. Commit all our hopes to thee in Jesus Christ, knowing that all thy promises unto us in him are yea and amen. May the faithful, therefore, our Father, unto thy word and unto thy thought. In Jesus' name, amen. Our subject today is the Balances of Justice, Daniel 5, the fifth chapter of Daniel. The Balances of Justice, Daniel 5. Belshazzar the king made a grave feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand, and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loose, and his knees smote one against another. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with sorrow, and have a chain of gold about his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was the king Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. Whom the king Nebuchadnezzar, thy father the king, I say, thy father made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then was Daniel brought in before the king. And the king spake and said unto Daniel, Ask thou that Daniel, which are of the children of the captivity of Judah, 
whom the king my father brought out of Jur. I have even heard of thee, that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof, that they could not show the interpretation of the things. And I have heard of thee that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet, and have a chain of gold about thy neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another, yet I will read the writing unto the king, and make known unto him the interpretation. O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind dark hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beast. And his dwelling was with the wild asses, they fed him with grass like oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and he appointed over it whomsoever he will. Thou, his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose ways are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is the writing that was written, Mene, Mene, Tico, Aparsim. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tico, thou art weighed in the balances, and art found wanting. Whereas thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet, and put a chain of gold about his neck, and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about three score and two years old. This chapter has been a target of contempt on the part of atheistic and modernistic scholars for many generations. They have said that this chapter reveals so clearly the absurdity of the whole Bible. Because, they said, everyone knows there was never any such king as Belshazzar in Babylon. And the last king of Babylon was named Nabonidus. Therefore, 
This chapter was pure myth and like the whole book poetry and like the Bible nonsense. But in the years immediately after World War I, excavations in Babylon turned up a very interesting thing. Nabonidus, the last king of Babylon, had a son. His son's name was Belshazzar. And when Nabonidus established a second capital in southern Arabia in order to control the trade routes to Europe and to India, he left at the capital in Babylon his son, Belshazzar, co-regent with him. Nabonidus was the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. But the usage of the day spoke of both son and grandson with the word son. Now, of course, the critics did not change their minds. They had ridiculed Daniel because it referred to Belshazzar, and they said no such person existed. Now they had evidence in their hands that Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus and had been made co-regent with Nabonidus. And so they said, it's obviously nonsense in spite of the historicity of Belshazzar because he is called king in the book of Daniel and the records that have been discovered do not refer to him as king. Unfortunately, very shortly thereafter, further tapas and inscriptions that were discovered spoke of Belshazzar as king. So the father and son were co-regents, co-kings, with Nabonidus taking the preeminence and his son a kind of second king. Co-regents are not unknown in history, in English history. William and Mary were co-regents a couple of centuries or so ago. But did this further confounding of the critics change their minds? Not at all. They still insist that the book is forgery, that it was never written by death. As Jesus Christ said, though one should return from the dead to witness to them, they will not believe. The story of Daniel 5 is of the last night of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had been gone. He had been succeeded by several very weak members of the family until a strong son-in-law finally came to the throne. The kingdom was powerful, it was flourishing. It did not seem possible that any enemy could be a threat. 
Now because they considered anything that came out of the unconscious of the monarchs to be significant, the dreams of monarchs were recorded. And therefore the dream of Nebuchadnezzar which Daniel had interpreted concerning the fall of Babylon and its successor, another great empire, this dream and the interpretation were documents of state, officially and duly recorded. The great army of the Medes and Persians were now outside the gates. Nabonidus was at the other capital. He made no attempt to return. The Babylonians were confident. After all, walls that were 70 feet high, as wide as this sanctuary, so that two-way traffic of chariots of four horses could be had on the top of the wall, was hardly readily overcome. On top of that, within the walls, they had stored up a 70-year supply of food. And so they believed themselves to be impregnable. impregnable. Let the army come. Let them camp outside the wall. Before very long, without food and with their supply lines so far away, the army would fall apart and could be picked to pieces and their bones would whiten in the desert sun. And as for Darius, the general of the Mede and Persian army, he was 62 years old. How long was he going to last in such a siege? 70 years? In seven years, his days would be old and his ability limited. And so that night, in contempt of the prophecies of Daniel, who had long since been demoted, retired, in contempt of the God of Babylon, in the confidence that they were unbeatable, Belshazzar and a thousand of his lords, his wives and concubines, at a banquet. And in deliberate and open contempt of the God of Daniel, he sent for the vessels from the temple and had them brought in so that they could drink out of these sacred vessels to indicate their contempt of that God. The religion of Babylon was celebrated, and the religion was that of the old Tower of Babel, of ascent by work, man rising up degree by degree until he became in the higher degrees one of the masters, one of the gods. Man was his own savior, responsible for his destiny, and the future was his to make. And as 
make clear. They were celebrating their victory over the God of Daniel, in defiance of Daniel's prophecy, saying in effect, I am the captain and the master of my fate and destiny. And suddenly, in the midst of this celebration, a hand appeared and began to write on the plaster of the wall. And terror filled all those present. And we are told that the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loose, and his knees smote one against another. And he cried aloud, summoning his wise men to come and to interpret the dream, promising that the one who interpreted it would be made third in the kingdom, after himself, he being second. No one was able to read the writing on the wall. And so we are told the queen, probably the queen mother, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter came in and reminded him of Daniel. And so Daniel was sent for. It galled Belshazzar to send for the very man whom he was despising and whose God he was despising. And so even as he asked Daniel to interpret the writing, he said, Art thou that Daniel, which are the children of the captivity of Judah? whom the king my father brought out of Jewry. He was compelled to appeal to the God and the prophet he despised. But he did by reminding Daniel of his slave origin to shame and to humble him and to say, your God didn't do much for you. What can he do to us? Daniel's response was to say, Your honor that you want to bestow on me, be to yourself. What honor is it to be third in a kingdom that is going to perish? But you, O king, know that the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in him, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men. And thou, Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. But instead you have proceeded in defiance and contempt of God. Therefore God sent the hand. And this writing was written. Nini, Nini, 
feet of a heart. Numbered, numbered, weighed, wanted. This is the interpretation of the thing. Meanly, God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Paris, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. This is the judgment of the God who despised. The inscription, probably in Hebrew, since it was understandable only to Daniel. Number, weigh, weigh, watch. Weighing refers to scale. And this is a most significant fact. Because a very important symbol in all the religions of antiquity whether of Egypt or of Babylon, is the figure of the scales, the scales of justice. In Egypt, when a man died and went to the underworld, he then began to recount all his good works. And they went into the scales of justice. And if his good works outweighed his bad, then he became a god, and he began to recite a litany, saying, with his toes, his fingernails, and his hair were beginning to turn into the hair, toes, and fingernail of a god, and his hands, feet, and head were beginning to turn into the hand of a god, and so on, naming all his parts, he declared that step by step he was becoming a god. This is what the scales meant. Man, by his merit, arose on the ladder of speculation, the ladder of works, up degree by degree, until he became not only a master, but a god. And out of this, too, come your Masonic degrees. This, too, is the face of Babylon. The scales of justice, whereby a man made a god of himself, whereby Babylon could feel confident. We have done all things necessary. How can we be defeated? How can we fail? We are of the order of the God. So God said unto them, You and your works, you and your self-righteousness, you and your pretended divinity, you are weighed on the scales of my justice, and I condemn you and everyone who holds to a similar faith.
then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck, made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. He was badly frightened, but only for a while. His heart was unregenerate. And so Daniel, having interpreted the vision, the dream, the handwriting on the wall for him, Belshazzar expressed his contempt of the interpretation by saying, I make you third in the kingdom. You're going to be around to see the kingdom prosper and flourish. And every day that you have to sit in office in your old position again, you will be reminded that you are a false prophet. In that night was Belshazzar the king of the Chaldeans slain. The city was taken without resistance. They sat there, confident. Their walls were so great, their food supply so tremendous. How could any enemy touch them? They were so confident. The enemy took them without resistance. Darius the Mede did not disturb the life of Babylon. Belshazzar and the others around him were put to the sword that very night. But the rest of the, of the city scarcely knew that there had been a change. Darius prevented the army from looting. He was going to rule this empire without any disturbance and use its wealth through taxation to enrich the Medo-Persian Empire. And Belshazzar, who made his proud boast, was gone by morning. And because they were not disturbed, the people of Babylon didn't bother to record how he died, how the city was taken. So passed Babylon. A captive to the Medo-Persian Empire. And later on, in fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel, turning back to the desert, a city set on many waters once, and later only a mound of earth that armies marched over. Never knew that it was there. The balances of God's justice had weighed in Belshazzar and found him wanting. This God is our God. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. And this is our confidence. The Belshazzars of our day shall be weighed in the balances. And 
they shall be found wanting, and they shall perish. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank thee that thou art the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank thee that thou art he who didst destroy Belshazzar in his pride and blasphemy. And so may all thine enemies perish, O Lord. We look unto thee in this generation when the Belshazzars are all around us, and they vaunt themselves against thee, and we await thy judgment and thy deliverance. How great thou art, O Lord, and we praise thee. In Jesus' name, amen. I couldn't uh, hear. There is judgment before death, but it is not always uh, total judgment. But there is both judgment in time and then the fullness of judgment in eternity. But especially for his blasphemy, Belshazzar was judged in time as well as in eternity. Yes. The same. The Babylonian people had the same faith that Belshazzar did. Yes, their judgment came a little more slowly, and they had so little loyalty that it didn't seem to bother them in the least. It was business as usual the next day and the day after. Yes. Yes, there is uh, a form of uh, mental behavior called zoanthropy, uh, and this is what, by the providence of God, struck him at that moment. And the people, uh, it was kept from the people probably, but he was turned loose apparently into the palace-owned pastures, and there uh, forged like the cattle. The horses. But this was by the hand of God, but it's also a condition that is known to man. Yes. Yes. 
do indicate that the Masons claim that the source of their religion is the Tower of Babel, and that when they were stricken by God and there was the confounding of languages, they established these symbols so that wherever they were, they would recognize one another and identify one another as members of a common lodge, and identify one another as members of a common lodge. And there is evidence, for example, and this comes from a book published by a prominent liberal, that during the days of the Barbary pirates in the Mediterranean, some Unitarian Yankee sea captains would fly Masonic symbols, being members of the lodge and of the Illuminist circle within, and they were never attacked. Similarly, white prisoners were spared by various Indians in warfare because the Indians had their secret lodges too, and they recognized the symbols. There is a great deal here that uh, has never been thoroughly pursued but is uh, very, very interesting. Yes? Yes, Shriners are technically not a Masonic order, but they are made up only of Masons of a certain degree. So to all practical intent, they are a higher Masonic order. And they especially their non-Christian aspect, the very uh, costuming and all, stresses the Muslim aspect. And the Muslim orders that they claim to be a part of go back to the early centuries and represent a very ugly bit of history. So you would think they would be ashamed to claim that heritage, but they do, and they're very proud of it. Yes. No, because the Bible does require the death penalty for a number of things. And uh, it does not uh, permit torture. This is never permitted in Scripture. It's specifically spoken against. Uh, burning did flourish in certain areas uh, in earlier centuries. Uh, we cannot agree with the uh, form of execution, but I would say very often the execution was justified. It was not as severe a uh, death as most people uh, seem to think. For this reason, the person was not burned to death. He usually died before the flames touched him from the smoke. He was asphyxiated very quickly. And this was done by putting a great deal of green wood on the fire at the very beginning. And then the smoke killed him very quickly, and then his body was reduced to ashes later. 
so that the uh, there is a great deal of misreading of such debts. N- nonetheless, we cannot agree that they were the proper mo- mode of execution. Yes, because there was an extensive amount of belief that uh, they should uh, rid the very country of everything that was contaminated, and this was the thesis behind the burning. Yes. No direct relationship, but uh, they're both basically humanistic faiths. Yes. Yes. The Salem witch trials, like the European witch trials, had a common cause. The witches' covens represented an underground movement. This underground movement was the old paganism of Europe. It was a fertility cult. Its practices, its form of worship was sexual. It involved uh, all kinds of sexual relations as a part of worship, it involved incest, it involved perversion. This church had as its purpose, it was an anti-church, the destruction of Christian Europe. Now, for quite a while, the uh, church leaned over backwards to avoid any persecution of these groups. But towards the latter part of the Middle Ages, especially as the universities began on their level to contribute to the breakdown of Christendom, and on the lower level, these groups began to rise and gain more and more power, they began a strong movement to destroy these cults. They were extremely powerful. They included, at times, many monarchs. There's an important writer, Dr. M.A. Murray, University of London, an anthropologist who has written several books on this, The Witchcraft Cult in uh, Western Europe, The God of the Witches, and The Divine King in England. In the last book, uh, Dr. Murray states that many of the monarchs were members of this cult, and every so often one of them had to be slain in order to uh, be a sacrifice in terms of the faith. And Dr. Murray has provided some very, very interesting documentation of this. Now, some have claimed, and this there is no uh, substantiation for, but this came over into this country so that there has had to be the ritual killing on... uh, periodic years of the American president. There seems to be a pattern of the, of the time of the 
various executions or liquidations of the presidents. That, of course, is pure surmise. But that this cult existed and was exceedingly powerful is definitely true. It has also been claimed, and I think there is evidence for this, that Joan of Arc was a member of this group. And this is why the church tried and executed her. The state, of course, was the formally doing the trial, but the church provided extensive testimony at the trial. And Joan of Arc, as it were, took the Fifth Amendment uh, in denying key questions that pointed to this. So that while there are some who defend her today, I think it must be admitted that on certain points she evaded critical questions. She insisted on dressing as a man. Now, and this was not just for military purposes, and certainly her right-hand man, Giles DeRay, was subsequently executed for a variety of crimes which included the uh, ritual slaying of innumerable children. Now, this group crept into Salem. While they tried to restrict the people who came over to those who were Christians, others came over as some as servants. One man named Burroughs came over who very obviously fostered and practiced such a cult openly. He was shipped back, I believe. My recollection serves me correctly. It's been some years since I've gone into the Salem trial. Finally, it reached the point where they had to have some trials. Now, it may be true that some of the girls who gave testimony were hysterical and that uh, one or two perhaps may have been falsely accused. But I think it's even more true that there was a great deal of evidence turned up, an important evidence. When they stopped it, it was because they began to fear that some hysterical persons were now testifying. They started it, they stopped it. When you read about it in the history books, they take certain things out of context to make it seem like nothing but hysteria. But I think it is interesting that more than one person who is not Christian, who's not pro-Puritan, has said of the Salem trials that there definitely was a subversive cult. We do know that such cults staged all kinds of revolutionary activities during the late Middle Ages. We're finding the same ideas today among the hippies and other groups. The same names, for example. The leaders among the hippies are the diggers. Now, it's significant that the diggers was the name of a radical communistic group in 17th century England. Why did they choose that name? Was it because they're harking back to the same ideas and represent basically the same faith? I think so. There's a marked similarity of belief there. 
at many, many points. So I think we have to recognize there is a great deal here. All the movement of today is to make these groups respectable. Now the Anabaptists are one such group. Everything you read about the Anabaptist movement at the time of the Reformation is designed to make the Anabaptists seem to be a very spiritual group who are very brutally treated. Well, they were a revolutionary group whose purpose it was to institute communism, and they staged a bloody revolution again and again in a number of places and seized control of a couple of areas. It is interesting that Karl Marx's associate, Friedrich Engels, wrote a book on the Anabaptists in which he said very plainly that this was one of the major early movements of communism and that the major defect of it was that it came too soon. The world wasn't ready for it. And he spoke of the Christian aspect of it as a kind of facade. Well, today, of course, we are told that Engel's book is not to be trusted. It's a very bad book. It's about the only book of Engel's these scholars will call bad. That the Anabaptists were the purest kind of Christians. Well, the ones who are telling us that the Anabaptists are such wonderful Christians are the modernists, the social gospelers, the revolutionists within the church. So I am very dubious of their testimony. And I do believe that we ought to take what they say about the treatment of the Anabaptists with a grain of salt. They have manufactured so much evidence, I'm a little suspicious even there. Although it is obvious that there was such bitter resentment against these Anabaptists that no doubt they did take stern measures and severe ones, unduly severe, when they reconquered these areas. One of the things, by the way, that the Anabaptists in instituted was sexual communism, among other things. Or uh, polygamy, rather, excuse me. Polygamy, among other things. And uh, there were all kinds of ideas that they propagated that have little connection with the Bible, that are revolutionary to the extreme. But... All these movements today are treated as though they represented real Christianity and we are uh, the anti-Christian element. Yes? Yes, we are in a period when, of course, history is being used to upset our knowledge, to destroy it. The land of the free is a good example, a most obvious one. But all the textbooks that came before the land of the free were perverting history and have been for a long, long time. So that we would not have a real knowledge of the past. Now, you recall that George Orwell, in his book 1984, speaks about Newspeak 
and how history is continually being revision and certain people are dropped out of sight so that they never existed. The uh, Soviet Union, its encyclopedias are loosely, they send you supplements and you're supposed to take out pages when somebody drops out of history, as it were, and destroy them and substitute other pages in your encyclopedia because that person is now a non-person. Now, when George Orwell wrote 1984, and this we often forget, he was describing the world around him in 1948. And he was saying, this is the world we have now. And the end conclusion of it in a few years will be 1984. But this is what we are doing now. And he knew he was a socialist. He lived and he died a socialist. He never believed in anything but socialism. He was not a Christian, so he had no hope. And he died a young man because having seen what was being done in the name of socialism, his great hope, the religion of humanistic man. He wrote Animal Farm in 1984, and he could see no way out but to die. And he died. give you an example. All the time I went through school, I was told about how horribly the Quakers were treated and how brutally they were executed by the terrible, terrible people of New England. Now, when I went back and read some of the original documents and some of the older works, I found it was very, very different. These Quakers were absolute nuts. They were fantastic people. They would come to these colonies from England with no purpose other than to make trouble. And so what did these poor people do? They'd come into their church services and they'd break them up. So they would escort them to the boundaries and say, in effect, please stay out. We're banishing you. It's a big open country. Go out there and build your own Quaker colony if you want one. But no. They didn't want that. They wanted to destroy the existing colony so they would come back in. And the next time they'd come back in, they wouldn't be content with just coming in and breaking up the church services. The Quaker men and women, the women were the worst at this, would parade naked right down the church aisle and stand up and rant at the congregation without a stitch on now, you can't blame those people for being upset. And after they kicked them out of the churches and out of the colony over and over and over again, they finally executed one or two. 
and then they stayed away. Now, I don't think there was anything brutal or cruel in executing them. I think they should have done it the first time. Yes. Could you repeat that again? I lost a few words there. Oh, yes. No, your Quaker history is a very bad one. From the very beginning, it was very closely connected with the same kind of revolutionary movement that Anabaptism was and still is. Quakerism was an Anabaptist movement. Now, for a while it pulled in its horns because James Naylor, who may have been, I would say in some respects, the most prominent Quaker, was arrested for blasphemy. He rode into Bristol in imitation of Christ's triumphal entry in Jerusalem, with the Quaker shouting, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, openly claiming to be a Messiah. Now, the reaction to this in England was so negative that the Quakers pulled in their horns. A few of the Quakers did represent a higher caliber. William Penn was one. And for a time, some of the saner Quakers who had pulled in their horns from this revolutionary kind of activity did flourish in Pennsylvania. However, they lost out very heavily during the War of Independence. First, because of their pacifism, and second, because they tended so to be pro-British and anti-American, and that didn't set very well. However, Quakerism, by and large, has, through most of its history, been connected with radicalism. Its basic doctrine of salvation is the one world religion. This was the first doctrine promulgated by Quakerism, that every man has the inner light, every man has a, some, a spark of divinity in him, so that whatever religion any man belongs to, he can be saved because he is a part of God and all he has to do is to develop that spark and he becomes a god. Now, the involvement of Quakers today in radicalism, I think, goes without saying. The American Friends Service Committee has quite a record. Technically, it's no longer connected with the Friends Church, but the Friends Church isn't too different in its involvement in social affairs. This basically has been the nature of Quakerism. This was its nature at the beginning. It pulled in its horns for a while, but it is simply manifesting again its basic nature. It is not Christian. It is a one-world religion. It believes that all people in all religions are equally the children of God and equally 
can save themselves. It does not believe in the sacraments of baptism and communion. Well, our time is just about over now, so... Oh, there was uh, something more I did want to share with you, and then we will be dismissed. There is an interesting book that has just been published by an occultist leftist group, Reincarnation in World Thought. The Library Journal has just described it as a noble, remarkable book. The distinguished psychiatrist Carl Menninger calls it, quote, a highly impressive collection of the reflections of many wise men in many places, unquote. And it goes on to say that the heretics of the Middle Ages were reincarnationists. The better known groups included the Albigenses in France, the Paterans of Italy, the German Cathari, and the Bogomils of Bulgaria. They were relentlessly exterminated by the Inquisition. Well, they were not only reincarnationists, but they were highly dangerous, subversive, uh, illuminist groups. Then uh, it cites among those who have been believers in reincarnation in this country is Thoreau, Emerson, Thomas Edison, Walt Whitman, Melville, and Mark Twain. And among those from Germany, Goethe, Heine, Hegel, Hesse, and Nietzsche. Now, it is interesting that the same publisher, a far leftist, has, and an occultist, is also promoting another book, Mystics and Zen Masters by Thomas Merton. Now, Thomas Merton is a monk who supposedly, before he became a Catholic or returned to Catholicism, uh, well, he was prior to that a communist, and supposedly he was converted. But this is interesting. The famous author and monk has been a devoted student of Eastern religions for many years. And herein he opens a genuine dialogue. He believes our spiritual and even our physical survival may depend on real communication between East and West. And it goes on to cite how he is trying to make this bridge. In other words, the one world religion is what he has in mind. And the review concludes it becomes clear that only the new freedom in the Catholic Church has made possible the publication of this valuable book.